I wonder whether uh, anyone would be brave enough to admit that you had once been involved in a feud with your neighbor. Anybody that brave? Anybody ever got caught in a neighbor feud? The kind of thing that years later you look back and you think that was just so dumb. I don't know why. Like anybody... I know you're dying for me to tell a personal story right now. I won't do it. But I will tell you a story about, that I read in the Globe and Mail. I think it was from about a year ago. A couple in Toronto, two couples in Toronto in Forest Hill. They live across the street from each other. The Terks and the Moreland Joneses. And their feud escalated to the point where the Moreland Joneses actually took the Terks to court to seek an injunction to get them to stop disturbing the peace in their neighborhood. Now, now you got to think, like, they took their neighbors to court. What on earth was happening between these families? It was some pretty significant stuff. I'll, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, the Moreland Joneses have 11 security cameras that, that surround their home, and two of those cameras just happen to be aimed at the Terk house, and so they see everything that goes on across the street. And one day, Miss Moreland Jones saw on the security camera footage Miss Terrick taking her dog for a walk on the other side of the street. And when the dog did its business, she took her bag and picked it up. And then instead of walking all the way to the back of her own house where her garbage can was, 50 or you know, 100 feet away, she had the nerve to walk the eight feet across the street and throw it in the Moreland Jones's garbage can. That's right. She threw her dog's poop in their garbage can. They were furious. Furious. And it's not, that's not it about the dog either. With some regularity, the Terks will allow their dog to go pee on the Moreland Jones's bush. They uh, got a lawyer to write a cease and desist letter about that one. That really, really bothered them. Now, of course, the Moreland Jones dog, not infrequently, will cross the street with the housekeeper and relieve itself on the Tersk side of the street, but that's only because that's the dog's favorite spot to go, right? Com completely understandable. But when the dog goes there, you know what Miss Tersk does sometimes? Terk, that's her name. She pulls out her iPhone, and she'll take a picture. Ms. Moreland Jones hates it when Ms. Terk takes a picture. And Ms. Terrick actually figured that out one day. So periodically, she stands on her driveway and aims her iPhone across the street and just takes pictures of the Moreland Jones house for no apparent reason. Now, uh, Ms. Terrick did confess in court in front of the judge that um, she was only pretending to take pictures. She never actually took a picture. She was doing it because she knew that Ms. Moreland Jones hated it. That's all. Um, but Ms. Moreland-Jones was annoyed, super annoyed, furious, in fact. She complained to the judge. She said, you know what? Sometimes she stands on her driveway and she doesn't have her iPhone at all. She just stands and stares at my house for like 25 seconds. Yes, that was the complaint. Ms. Moreland-Jones uh, once yelled at Ms. Terk over that, and Ms. Terk politely gave her the finger. And by that time... By the time the judge had heard all of these stories, he uh, dismissed the case and advised the two families that neither one of them needed lawyers. What they both needed was a kindergarten teacher to teach them how to behave 
like five-year-olds. <laughs> it's the craziest story I've ever read, and yet in some strange way, according to Jesus, it's a little bit illustrative of what the kingdom of God is like. See, we've been going through Matthew chapter 13, looking at these stories that Jesus tells to um, help his disciples understand what the kingdom of God is like. In fact, to answer a question that's hanging over the text of Matthew's telling of the good news about Jesus. And the question is this, if Jesus is who Jesus claims to be, then why, by this point in the story, are people not responding more exuberantly, more enthusiastically to Jesus than they are? Because Matthew's whole point for the first 10 chapters is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is God himself walking among us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, endowed with God's power and authority in everything that he says and in everything that he does to rescue God's people, to bring them forgiveness and wholeness and holiness. So that this community of God's rescued people can band together and partnering under the authority of Jesus bring restoration to God's creation and make the world the way God wants the world to be. That's who Jesus is and that's what Jesus is about and the disciples are expecting that based on Jesus' teaching and based on the healing that he's bringing to people's lives and into the world that people would have responded enthusiastically to Jesus but they're just not. Some people are disappointed with Jesus. It's kind of a letdown as far as Messiah's go. Some people are skeptical and cynical. Some people are critical. They complain about Jesus. They say that Jesus isn't religious enough. There was one town after Jesus set two men free from the darkness and the chaos that they were living in. He completely healed them. The, the townsfolk kicked them right out of their area. Told them to leave and to never come back. Some people had already concluded that Jesus was actually in league with the devil. And the question that hangs over the text is, if Jesus is who Jesus says he is, then why isn't the kingdom coming the way we expected it would come? It's a question that still hangs over a lot of us. We've had it, thought it, wondered it, doubted it, talked about it, somebody else has asked it. <clears throat> If Jesus is, excuse me, who Jesus claims to be, why is there so much hurt and pain in the world? And Jesus answers the question in Matthew chapter 13 by telling another parable. Verse 24, it says, Jesus told them another parable. See, I told you. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and he went away. And when the weeds sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. Jesus, in basically every way imaginable, is, is cueing us the fact that this is a sequel story to the one we looked at last week, the parable of the sower. The language is all the same of field and sowing and seed and kingdom and evil one and and this idea of overcoming obstacles. It's a story about a man who goes into his field as a farmer to sow seed in his field in order to, to plant a crop that he hopes is going to feed his family and, and provide him with a sustainable living, a sustainable income for another year. A man, for the second story in a row, 
who finds that his attempt to sow a, a, his crop, to plant his crop, and to grow a, a healthy crop for him and his family, doesn't exactly unfold this plan. This man goes out, plants his seed, and while the ground is still tilled up and soft, in the middle of the night, a neighbor, someone with, with, with which he has been feuding, maybe, comes and sows the seed of weeds in and amongst the wheat, just fills his field with the seed that will produce weeds among the wheat. The weeds, in all likelihood, the, the weeds that um, the man is planting in his neighbor's field, in this neighbor that he hates, the weed is probably the bearded darnel weed. It's native to that part of the world. Actually, I have a picture for you. You can see the bearded darnel and the wheat side by side. You can just you can see how similar they are in plants. In fact, botanically speaking, these plants are, are nearly identical for most of the growth cycle. In the stalk, they're almost, almost impossible to tell apart. In fact, you can only begin to tell them apart once the, once the it begins to you know, grow the kernels, the heads of grain, and so on, which is why it says in the story that once the wheat sprouted ears, then the weeds appeared. It's not like the wheat had grown this high and was sprouting ears, and then the weeds started growing. No, no, they were all growing together at the same time. You just couldn't tell which was which until the grain started growing its heads at the top, and the bearded darnel, when the heads mature and ripen, they ripen and become black. And that's really the, the way you can tell what is a bearded darnel and what is a wheat plant. And so what happened is as the wheat begins to grow, the weeds are growing alongside and everybody thinks there's a bumper crop. And then as the heads begin to form, all of a sudden they begin to be able to tell that a good number of these plants are actually weeds and not wheat. And a really insidious weed too. The, the bearded darnel, the roots are actually grow much deeper than wheat. They get the better moisture, the better nutrients. And, and actually they grow stronger than wheat. And the bearded darnel weeds, uh, the roots often entangle themselves with the root system of the wheat so that in effect below the surface it becomes a single plant. You can't remove the bearded darnel without tearing up the wheat alongside. The thing about the bearded darnel not only does it rob the wheat of nutrient and moisture and so on, make it compete for the sun and all of that, it's actually the host to a fungus that's really toxic to human beings. Now, I don't think this neighbor, this enemy, was actually trying to poison this family. I'd be surprised if that was the goal, but I think he was trying to ruin this man's crop. He was sabotaging his career. He was destroying his income seed, his uh, income stream. He was ruining his reputation. He, there's no way this man was going to be able to take this kind of stuff to the market if he took it to market and it was mixed with bearded Darnell, you know, uh, kernels and so on. His reputation would be ruined. This man was trying to ruin his enemy's life. He was playing hardball. This isn't pretending to take a picture of your neighbor's house on an iPhone. This is like poisoning the cat or worse though I don't know that anybody would really object to poisoning a cat but that's any that's neither here nor there and I don't think it's in the text but the but this is the thing like this guy's trying to ruin his enemy's life the servants come to the owner verse 27 and they say to him sir didn't you sow good seed in your field where then did the weeds come from an enemy did this he replied, 
The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? And no, he answered. Because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. No, you have to let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring it into the barn. The, the servants come to the owner of the field and they say, sir, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you, you planted some good seed. I mean, the seed that the owner would have had would have come from the, either the previous year's crop, which presumably was a decent crop, or it would have come from a supplier whose reputation is on the line. The seed would have been good quality seed. I said, where'd the weeds come from? And he said, I know exactly who did this. With those Turks who live across the street. <laughs> I said, do you want us to pull them up? And he said, no. You have to now let them grow together until the harvest. Verse 36, it says, Jesus left the crowd and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered them, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the people of the kingdom and the weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. They come and say, explain the parable and Jesus doesn't, tell them the story. He doesn't unpack it piece by piece. Instead, he gives them the decoder ring. He says, if you want to solve the riddle of the parable, here it is. The son of man is the one who sowed the seed. And, and he goes on, the field is the world. And he tells them all the, all the components of the story. This is what they really are. This is what they represent symbolically. And you take all of these images now and plug them into the story. He says, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And the story goes like this. Jesus says, I came into the world to gather to myself a community of people who were committed to the coming of the kingdom of God, who were committed to, to living lives that reflect the truth, beauty, and goodness of the love of God, and then partnering together in community with each other under my leadership to be a community that is committed to spreading the truth and beauty and goodness of the love of God all over the world so that the kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom, the place where God is allowed to be in charge and make the world into the kind of place God always wanted to be. The kingdom would be coming and spreading throughout the world. Jesus says, that's what, I, that's what I'm about. That's why I've come. But he says, right alongside of me, there is somebody else who is sowing their own seed. It's the devil. The one the Bible calls the accuser, the Satan. And, and the enemy is sowing his own seed in the field. And the seed the enemy is sowing, he's doing exactly what I'm doing, Jesus says. He's gathering for himself a community of people who aren't interested in the truth, beauty, and goodness of the love of God, but whose lives instead reflect the deception and the ugliness and the evil of what it means to stand opposed to what God is doing in the world and gathering this community around himself, a community that shares his values. The enemy is employing them to resist and to seek to, to halt and to slow and to stop the spread of the kingdom of God in the world. Jesus says, this is the reality in which we live. 
So the question that hangs over the text is, if Jesus is who Jesus says he is, and if he's doing what he says he's doing, then why isn't the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven to a much greater degree than it is? And the answer is, according to Jesus, because I'm not the only one out there working in the field. There is an enemy who is working against me, who is sowing seeds of deception and ugliness and evil in order to thwart what I'm doing in the world. It's interesting, you, you don't have to look very far to see the seeds of the enemy growing all over the place. You just have to watch the news in the evening. Stories about ISIS and the Syrian civil war and the, the refugee migration that is now resulting because of it. Religious, the violence of religious fundamentalism, the, the violence and chaos of civil war run amok. Nations that, uh, well, like ours, like North America, nations of immigrant peoples who won't open their doors to immigrant peoples. Stories of uh, Planned Parenthood. Aborted fetuses being sold for parts. Stories about corporate greed about an economic system that favors the 1% and leaves the 99% to fend for themselves. And by the way, just so that we're clear, we are the 1%. The gap between the rich and the poor continues to grow. We, we see stories about exploitation, exploitation of our planet, exploitation of human beings for, for work, child labor and sweatshops and all of that exploitation, people being trafficked for sex and pornography and prostitution. You, you don't have to watch very much of the news to see the seeds of the enemy growing in this field of the world in which God is trying to grow his kingdom. But in some ways, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that that's the kind of evil that Jesus is talking about. See, just Think about the story. In the story, you have a man who sows seed and another man who mimics that behavior almost perfectly. The, the farmer sows seed during the day in order to uh, grow a, a crop of wheat. The, the enemy sows seed at night in order to grow a crop of weeds. In, in fact, they're mirror images of each other performing exactly the same behavior for exactly opposite purposes. The enemy, you see, is a counterfeiter. Look at the seed that he's sowing. In, in some ways, the seed is nearly identical to the seed that, that Jesus is sowing. That it, at some respects, it, at many times, it, for quite a long period of time, you can't even tell the difference between the activity of the enemy and what the enemy is growing in the world and the activity of God and what God is growing in the world. See, I think there, there are radical forms of evil in the world that get splashed all over the evening news every single day, but I think there are even more insidious forms of evil than the ones we see on the news. ISIS is a horrendous, horrifying thing. This refugee crisis is a horrifying thing, but I don't 
believe necessarily that those are the most spiritually dangerous things going on in our world right now. I think the most spiritually dangerous things going on are the things that happen and we don't even notice. The enemy comes and plants at night and nobody sees what happens. And the plants that grow are, look almost identical to the wheat that is growing. Nobody can tell what is happening. It, those are the kinds of evil to me that are far more insidious and spiritually dangerous. The kind that we don't even notice. The cultural values that infect our hearts and the hearts of people around us. Values of consumerism and this radical individualism that only, you know, that defaults to looking out for number one. That, that lives, that has, <clears throat> excuse me, embraced this culture of distraction and entertainment and it's growing inside of us every bit as much as it's growing everywhere else because it's just a part of the culture in which being nurtured and raised and we're absorbing it by osmosis and it's growing inside of us and we don't even notice. We don't notice because there's stuff growing inside of us that's it's just growing so slowly we don't even see the way that it's taking over. Like the bitterness in your heart or the inhospitality in that relationship or with the marginalized that is growing so slowly or you don't even realize the degree that it's taking over your whole heart. It's the stuff we don't notice because it's so small. It's, it's got to be harmless because it's so tiny. That piece of gossip that we dropped yesterday or the way we indulged somebody else's gossip in relationship or the you know the porn that someone chose to view last night it's so insidious because we don't even notice it I think the enemy is a counterfeiter and he works below the radar and he works in ways that we don't even see in ways sometimes even that appear to be God at work this passage made me think of second Corinthians chapter 11 in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul's writing to this church, the Corinthian church, and he's warning them about a certain group of traveling ministers who've made their home in the Corinthian church, people that Paul calls super apostles. But it turns out that these super apostles, these celebrity pastors that have engaged in this community are actually more pseudo apostles. In verse 13 he says, for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Paul says, Satan's a mimicker, he's a counterfeiter. He, he puts on a mask and he acts the way Jesus acts. He, he knows how to mimic Jesus' behavior. And those who are most insidiously at work at, in Jesus are those who can on the surface appear to be most at work for Jesus. It's interesting that this parable that Jesus tells is aimed primarily I think, at the Pharisees. Those that everybody in Jesus' culture would have said, well, if anybody's godly, if anybody's credentialed, if anyone's educated, if anyone is, understands scripture, if anybody knows how to teach and how to live it, it's this community of people. And Jesus says, no, 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 those are bearded Darnell growing up among the wheat. Those are the, they're the dangerous ones. They're the ones who are bearing toxic fruit and you can't even sometimes can't even tell the kind of fruit that they're going to bear. Because by all accounts on the surface, they appear to be doing God's work. I think there are celebrity pastors on the radio and on TV that are 
that are sowing um, not a more destructive, but a more insidiously dangerous kind of spiritual uh, destruction than even the stuff that we see on the news. And yes, I am aware of the irony of me making that statement because I have been accused of being one of those people several times over the last couple months. Satan is at work in ways that we don't even notice. In ways that sometimes we actually even attribute to the power of God at work in the world. And he's doing it to spread, to fill the field that is this world with the weeds of deception and ugliness and evil. To push back against what God is doing in the world. To fight back against the truth, beauty, and goodness of the love of God that God is trying. So why, if, God, if Jesus is who he says he is, why is the kingdom not coming more than it appears to be? It's because there is an enemy at work. But the day is coming, Jesus says. Verse 39, he says, the harvest, this is the end of the explanation, the harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. And as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Jesus says that's the way that it is for the moment, but he says, take heart. There is a day that is coming. He talks about the end of the age for ancient Jews, Jews in the first century. Um, History was divided into two periods of time. There was this age, which was all of human history. It was the here and now. And then there was the age to come. And the age to come would be the time when God finally intervenes in human history and roots out evil and pain and destruction and death and eliminates the tears and the sin and and eliminates all the ugliness and falsehood and deception when God comes in and cleans house in his creation and restores the world and his people to being the people that he always wanted to be. And And the moment where this age passes into the age to come is the moment when the Messiah comes. Christian would say the age to come began to dawn in our world when the Messiah came in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and the kingdom will finally come fully, finally, freely and forever on earth as it is in heaven in the moment that the Messiah comes again at the second coming of Jesus when this age passes into the age to come. And in that moment, Jesus says, God is going to come and he's going to clean house and he's going to remove from his creation everything that causes sin and everyone who has committed their lives to pushing back against the truth, beauty, and goodness that God is trying to, with which, of the love of God that he's trying to flood the world with. Now I just want to, I, I want to say a word about this language of throwing them in the blazing furnace where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth just because some people want to read those verses and, and infer from them that God's uh, life after death plan for people who have not embraced Jesus in faith is to throw them in a fiery place where they will be conscious and tormented by God as punishment for their sin for all of eternity. And you cannot read that conclusion out of those verses. 
And this is the reason why, two reasons. Number one, because Jesus is talking in an apocalyptic mode, which was a common way of teaching and writing in, in when Jesus was alive. And, and it's, the, it's like the writing of the book of Revelation. It's filled with dragons and monsters with ten heads and seven horns and beasts of the sea and beasts of the land. And it's very graphic and cartoonish. And, um, and at the end of the day, it is my point, symbolic. Nothing about apocalyptic literature was intended to be taken literally. But not only is this apocalyptic literature or apocalyptic speaking, this is apocalypse embedded in the midst of a parable, which I've been saying for three weeks now, is symbolic language. It's not to be intended to take literally. It's truth that is intended to point towards something else. And so what I would say about this passage, I believe that at the end of this age, when Jesus returns and the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven fully and finally and freely and forever, and this, the world becomes the world the way God always wanted it to be, and we get to live for eternity. We got, when that moment comes, God is, in Jesus Christ, going to root evil out of his creation, and that is going to include those who have been actively engaged in pushing back against what God has been doing in this world. And I think... In my mind, what happens at that moment in time, since they have, with their entire life, declared that they want nothing to do with the kingdom, when the whole world becomes the kingdom, they're just not going to be a part of it. Um, If God is life, they have chosen, as one of my professors once said, they're a scuba diver who's chosen to cut their own breathing tube, and their experience is going to be removed from the kingdom. I, I honestly think God is just going to snuff out their existence for eternity. But that's not the point that Jesus is trying to make. The point that Jesus is making to his disciples is there is a day coming. God knows what is happening in the world. God knows that there is an enemy at work that is pushing back against the truth, beauty, and love of God that is, that is infecting the world through the community of those who have aligned themselves in faith under the leadership of Jesus and who are filled with the Holy Spirit, living in hope and anticipation of God's kingdom coming and therefore committed to living lives of love to God and to each other and then love that spills out into the entire world. There is a day coming when God is gonna intervene in human history and he is going to pull out everything that causes sin, everything that creates destruction. In fact, this is how John describes it in the book of Revelation chapter 21. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth renewed is the word. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The the world such as it is in the way that it is now didn't exist anymore. And there was no longer any sea, evil, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the church, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, Jesus. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The way things were is no longer. And he who was seated on the throne, who is God, said, I am making everything new. Jesus says the day is coming when God is making everything new, when there will no longer be any tear uh, 
or death or mourning or crying or pain when everything that causes sin, all the deception and the ugliness and the evil that has infected our world, the seed of the enemy that has grown into the toxic fruit of sin will have been removed from creation. And in that day, we will see the kingdom for the way God always intended it to be. But for now, but for now, Jesus says, this is the world such as it is. This is the world in which we get to live. A world in which the truth and beauty and goodness of the love of God is pushing forward through people like us and communities like ours who have in faith aligned ourselves with Jesus in hope, look forward to the coming kingdom and in love have committed to serving him, each other, and the world. But we live in the midst of an enemy who is sowing his own seed, who is creating deception and ugliness and evil in the world that results in pain and death and tears and mourning and crying. And this is the world that we get to live in. Somebody, I just read this this week, the Christian hope does not eliminate the suffering and struggle of the conflict in which we live. In fact, in some ways it makes it worse. This is where we live. We live in the space where all you have to do is flick on the news and you can see the bearded Darnell of the enemy growing all around you. It's awful black toxic seed sprouting all over the world. We live in a world where in our own relationships, in our own communities, in the ways that those around us have hurt us and each other and themselves, we see the black toxic fruit of the enemy being birthed all around us in our own lives and in our own hearts in the wrath and the sloth and the lust and the greed and the envy and the pride that we battle every single day we see the black toxic seed of the enemy giving birth and we live lives as a result that are a mixture of joy and hope and celebration and tears and mourning and crying and pain Why is the kingdom not coming more than it is? Because this is the world in which we live. But thank God that Jesus has met us in the midst of the world in which we live. And as we become those people who, be, who are agents of his truth and beauty and goodness of his love in the world, may we learn to sit with him in the midst of the tears and the mourning and the crying and the pain. And sit with him, not only in faith, but in hope for the day when the kingdom will finally come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we are those who celebrate and anticipate the day when your kingdom will finally come, but we are also those who in the meantime sit and live in the midst of the struggle, who are all too familiar with the tears and the mourning and the crying and the pain, with the deception and the ugliness and the evil that resides not only around us, but in us. And God, we are those who lives lives whose hearts break 
for the ways that we see the enemy at work among us in the world. Thank you that you are with us in this space. Thank you that you entered into our reality, took it on yourself and took it in yourself and in the cross defeated it so that we can know with confidence that one day love wins in the end. Would you sit with us and be with us, God, especially those who are here this morning who are carrying that tears, those tears in the morning and the crying and the pain. Especially those who are living with the black toxic fruit of the enemy in their soul and in their relationships and in their lives. Meet us in the midst. We pray in the name of Jesus who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.